Welcome back to another episode of the Global Connected Aircraft Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the use of neural network technology within aircraft systems. If you haven't seen our announcement yet, we are officially postponing the 2020 Global Connected Aircraft Summit until 2021. We'll have more details on a virtual version of the summit that will be coming out around the same time frame as the scheduled event this year. So stay tuned for more details on that in the next few weeks. On April 1st, Dedalian, which is a Zurich, Switzerland-based startup founded in 2016 in collaboration with the European Aviation Safety Agency, uh, they co-published a report entitled Concepts of Design Assurance for Neural Networks in Aviation. And in this interview today, you'll learn how the founder of that company envisions the introduction of this neural network technology into aviation. You can think of neural networks as a sort of subset of artificial intelligence and machine learning. If you are familiar with those terms uh, during this interview, we clearly define all three terms and also discuss uh, where you can think of some of the near-term applications for neural network technology within aircraft systems. So let's go ahead and get into today's discussion. Luke, if you could just introduce your name, job title, and a little bit of background about your company as well to our audience. Um, my name is Luke van Dijk. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of The Dalian, uh, which is a startup in Switzerland. We started about four years ago with the idea to bring modern robotics, computer vision, and deep learning to the world of safety certified, uh, critical, safety critical aviation applications. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm their leader. <laughs> well, see you. <laughs> yeah. And it's a very kind of interesting story behind how Dedalian started and, you know, sort of some of the companies that you all come from. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, you know, started in 2016 um, and we, you know, published a very important document earlier this month with EASA. But just first, a little bit of background about Dedalian and how you all got sure. started. So uh, a lot of us uh, and myself included uh, spent uh, quite some time at Google and got uh, in, infused with the Silicon Valley. Yes, can do make the world a better place ambition type of uh, attitude, which is uh, in Europe, not so commonly found. Um, so that was one crucial ingredient. And then I had the privilege to be part of SpaceX for um, uh, about a year and a half, uh, around 2013. And there I, um, uh, instead of you know, organizing the world's information, which you know, ultimately you can have a debate on if you organize information enough or not, uh, I got to work on really tangible systems where Mother Nature will be the judge if this works or not, thank you, uh, namely the rockets. Uh, and so that was a very um, interesting juxtaposition of attitudes towards uh, you know, whether, whether things are good enough or not. And um, so around 2015, uh, I left uh, Google uh, and... Um, uh, I wanted to do a startup that was, you know, Silicon level, Silicon Valley type ambition um, and uh, tackle the concrete problem that would really, you know, make a difference um, 
here in Zurich in Switzerland. And then I was looking around at the self-driving uh, scene, which was, you know, it was all the rage at the time to do a company in the self-driving space. Uh, a lot of them popped up. But I happened to be uh, introduced to a company called Lidium Aviation, who were a startup of uh, four people at the time. And they had a scale model one to two and a half. And I thought, you know, that thing really has to be self-flying for the business model to make any sense. And uh, conversely, for uh, someone to invest into autonomy uh, at aerospace level, that would require the kind of volumes that are currently completely lacking from the uh, aviation uh, industry, where you know, total number of aircraft sold in a, in a given year is in the low thousands uh, rather than in the hundreds of millions. So I thought it would be an interesting um, application of uh, modern robotics and computer vision and deep learning to get that to the world of safety critical aviation. And then at the same time, there was a gap between, there's a widespread conception that, oh, nobody knows how these things work and they're not deterministic and they're hard to, uh, so it's impossible to get them certified. Uh, and there, uh, there was actually some background from my time at SpaceX that was relevant where, um, you know, SpaceX uh, on the inside also has a lot of Silicon Valley mentality, like, you know, uh, sure, we can get to Mars. How hard can it be? And then, you know, it turns out to be actually hard. <laughs> but then it does not help if you uh, treat uh, NASA as, uh, you know, legacy, step aside and let us do this. Instead, you have to embrace them and look at their concerns. And, you know, they do bring uh, half a century of how you make it safe to fly these incredibly dangerous things. And so you should embrace uh, regulation and rules and the lessons learned from uh, safety critical uh, uh, engineering and, uh, you know, not to do this in the Silicon Valley way. So people who write apps for phones should not be allowed anywhere near software that is uh, that, that has the potential to, to ruin lives. Um, and that, uh, so, so I try to bring that uh, attitude uh, that the, 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 in, this, in our case, the regulators, the FAA and EASA, you know, they are not some bureaucratic hurdle that we have to, uh, um, blow past, uh, you know, Uber style to uh, to get our systems on the market. We have to listen to their concerns and uh, and address them and see them as, you know, a very important part of the customer is them because they have a right to, on behalf of the public, demand that things are safe. So that's exactly where I thought, you know, it seems like nobody's doing that. So why don't I go and do that? So by now we're about uh, 40 people. Uh, we opened the side office for data annotation in Minsk. And uh, yes, as you said, um, uh, so we already two years ago, we went to EAS and said, hey, suppose we show up with the system that has a neural network in it in a couple of years, you know, uh, how can we prove to you that it's safe enough? And uh, the first time we got there, they said, well, you know, how about you go do some homework? Uh, and they gave us a detailed list of things that they would be concerned about. And a year later, we came back. And around that time, the European Commission had issued, um, uh, had, had started an initiative called the Trustworthy AI, uh, where uh, it would it encouraged or you know directed its organs, uh, of which EASA is one, uh, to uh, put some thought in how you make this artificial intelligence that seems to be older age these days um, safe and trustworthy. And uh, so the, this was a very good time for us to show up at the EASA doorstep again with, hey, we've done our homework. Can we talk to you about how to do this? And uh, they proposed that we did, uh, uh, an, uh, it's called an innovation partnership contract, an IPC, where uh, we work together with their experts on 
you know, working through a particular topic. And uh, so the title of the um, project was uh, Concepts for Design Assurance of Neural Networks. And uh, we uh, finished it uh, about a month and a half ago, and we published 90% uh, uh, of it um, in, into the public domain uh, on EASA's website uh, in the hope that we can advance the state of the debate. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, document there. If you, if you do, if you are listening and have a chance to read it, it is the uh, EASA created concepts of design assurance for neural networks. Um, now, this was published earlier this month, and it's a very interesting read. Um, before diving into some specific questions that we do have about neural network technology and you know the overall report, wanted to ask you if you could first give our audience kind of a basic understanding of some of these terms that you did mention in, in you know our first uh, little discussion there. Um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and neural network. Um, could you first just define what those terms mean for our, for our audience? That, that's probably a very good idea because part of the problem we recognize in the state of the discussion uh, out there in the world is that AI, artificial intelligence, is actually rather broad and pretty ill-defined. So it's no wonder that it's hard to make any meaningful statements or that people scratch their heads how we're going to prove anything about the safety. So artificial intelligence is roughly, you know, anything that competes with human intelligence. But really, it's all the stuff that the scientists and engineers don't really know how to do yet. So in the 1950s of the previous century, artificial intelligence was, you know, a computer playing chess that was seen as the summit of a human intellectual endeavor. And uh, once that was solved, you know, it became information science and computer science and, 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 and engineering. And then Go uh, was a game that uh, for a while held the, uh, the, the, the title of hardest intellectual thing that humans do. Um, but it turns out that actually, uh, so that was also solved uh, meanwhile with the advance in computer power and with uh, the new uh, types of computation that that made possible. And then it turns out that recognizing cat in a video it's actually, at least it's hard, but you know, that's not also solved. So whenever these uh, AI problems are solved, they're no longer really AI, they're um, branches of um, uh, science and engineering. And one very broad field there is uh, the field of machine learning, uh, which is, um, depending on how you look at it, it's a form of statistics uh, or of information science, uh, or you know, according to other people, that's all the same thing. Um, so machine learning is the branch of engineering where you have a, a computer algorithm explore the solution, the design space for a system by feeding it lots and lots of data. And then this algorithm will come up with a solution to this engineering problem in the form of another computer program or another function that can be evaluated on a computer that solves this predefined problem. And so that's already way more specific, but still a pretty broad field that goes through uh, you know, ups and downs in uh, attention. Um, and uh, a subfield of that is, uh, or a subclass of systems uh, in the field of machine learning is the, the deep convolutional neural network. The neural network is a form of a computer program that's inspired by how human brain cells work or, you know, uh, biological brain cells. And it turns out it's a pretty broad class of uh, algorithms that you can teach to recognize things by showing it lots and lots of examples. And um, 
for some problems that you have out there in the real world, like you look out the window and of your aircraft and you want to see if something looks safe to land on, uh, it's pretty hard to code that up in a classical computer program that has, you know, if and then statements. Um, but it turns out you can train these neural networks on large set of examples to see the difference between safe and unsafe. And then the, the challenge becomes how to prove that it is safe. And now, so this is why people are at trustworthiness. And the, you know, the impulse, the, the intuitive way to try to approach it is to try to understand how it works. And then you look at this network is really represented by 20 million weights in a large matrix. And people say, well, you know, I can't understand what's going on here. Therefore, I cannot explain or, or argue that it's good enough and therefore it should not be certified. And those last two steps are actually a misconception. And what the, what the report set out is to, what we set out to do in the report um, was to uh, clarify that a bit. Yeah, and it was interesting reading in the report that is described, um, you had a team between May 2019 and April 2020, or, you know, this was published in February, but you had a team of up to 30 mm -hmm. software engineers and even some pilots and avionics specialists participated in this effort. Um, ah. What were some of the things contributed from this software engineering perspective on the Dedalian side? And then, you know, how did the pilots and avionics specialists help you from an aviation okay, perspective? It's, it's maybe a bit of a misunderstanding. So our company is about 30 software engineers and some of us are pilots and, and avionics specialists. Um, so it was a company-wide effort. You know, everybody, you know, everybody okay. knew about it and, you know, contributed what they could. But the core team from our side was about five people. Um, and the core time team from the other side was also five people. So, which is still, you know, writing a report with 10 people is actually not trivial. So what we did is um, we went uh, to Köln about every month for about a day. And so in the meantime, we would have drafts and we would come there and talk through specific topics. And then uh, what worked really well is, uh, so this is already before we started, we, we asked the author, so what are your concerns uh, because you know, we what what are your <laughs> we we have to your, answer your question. So they really contributed the table of contents, if you will. You know, these are the things we would like to see addressed, and then we had to make a bit of a selection. I mean, we couldn't talk about everything. We talked about a very specific system, but uh, so he also contributed the table of contents, and what they also contributed was the vocabulary, because we also very early on noticed that the uh, words mean different things between machine learning, academic people, and aviation safety critical people. For example, the word randomness, I threw that out in a conversation early on at some point, and there was massive confusion because it means something completely different for an avionics engineer than for a mathematician. Um, so they contributed really the table of contents and the uh, vocabulary, and then we could contribute our knowledge on how to argue uh, performance um, bounds, so to really prove properties of uh, these neural networks. So, for example, they you want to do um, um, uh, failure modes uh, and effect analysis. Uh, you know that concept itself you know, was relatively alien to us. So, yeah, I said you know worked us through uh, an FMEA, um, and then we could bring in um, guarantees, mathematical uh, bounds on the, on the performance and, and glue that together. So that worked really well. Um, then, um, so what we, and then what we came up together uh, really 
is so the, the the meat of the report is really that uh, so instead of trying to focus on which of these 20 million numbers makes it uh, recognize the runway or not uh, that's really the wrong way of, that's a myopic way of looking at it it's like you know wondering if it's the paper or the ink that makes the poem good um, so you really have to take a step back and say okay these emerging properties from this neural network where do they come from and it turns out they come from when you train it uh, on these data sets so you have to look at what you can tell about this data sets that you trained on in the lab uh, and the focus of the design assurance. Assurance really means you know, provide certainty. You have to look at the quality of the data set in the lab and the algorithms you use to explore these design spaces. And then um, what the field of learning theory uh, uh, could contribute, and, and much of this actually predates the neural network uh, era, is um, some mathematical bounds on how well uh, what you do in the lab generalizes to what you can expect to see in flight. And uh, for that, you have to be very careful. And the way of being careful is not alien to uh, the regulator and the industry and the certification industry. So for example, we could borrow a lot of the vocabulary of uh, DO200, which is about uh, certification of the quality of data sets, to talk about the data sets that we use for training in, uh, in these neural networks. So, um, yeah, sorry, I, I tend to digress and expand a bit. Why don't you ask, ask a question before I talk No problem, yeah, no problem, no, it's, it's very helpful. Um, no, so in chapter four of the report that you published with IASA, actually, um, it goes over a use case for neural networks in aviation, and that use case is image recognition and visual landing systems. Now, can you kind of walk us through the steps of how the use of neural networks could unlock new capabilities in object detection technology for right. aircraft. So we thought, let's take a very concrete system that we could, that you could imagine us building. Actually, we have built it and we would like to put it out on the market. And then this is one of the few cases that uh, uh, you know, we have a very clear path to market for. Uh, so it was good to use this as the sample case. So you have, uh, you're familiar with the instrument landing system. There's about 60 airports in the world that have a category three um, uh, infrastructure that lets you land your aircraft all the way to touchdown, provided you have very expensive equipment on board. And, um, but human pilots, you know, routinely land aircraft by just using their eyes. Uh, so in fact, it's, it's not a coincidence that humans have eyes because it's a very dense and reliable source of information. You know, with it has its limits, but compared to any other instrument on board of the aircraft, uh, they can all go away. They're all optional as long as the pilot has his or her eyes open. You should be able to get to the ground. So it's a pretty high bar of reliability. Um, so what if we want to mimic this with uh, a computer system? Then we need to give this computer system eyes. So we limit ourselves to uh, VFR and visual meteorological conditions, and we have a camera that is uh, pointing out the front of the aircraft, and at some point, the, the landing uh, strip is in view, and then you need some algorithm that says, okay, it's over there, and then you feed that to the autopilot. So um, that middle step where you get an image, you say, okay, this looks like uh, the corners, the four corners of the runway, um, that is a step that you can do very well with one of these networks. And then in the uh, complete constellation of the system, you have to prove that this you know, makes for a safe system. So that's the example we, we worked through. 
There are other you know, potential applications, for example, for helicopters, you could do emergency landing guidance. Um, so if you have a power failure as a pilot, you have a couple of seconds to decide which way you're going to auto-rotate. It would be helpful if you had a system that could look on the ground and said, you know, of all the things I see, this is probably the least bad choice to auto-rotate you. And that, that would also be a clear, a, a clear benefit um, uh, already. Uh, and um, uh, so, so I think that because the current bar is a human with eyes flying in in in, in DFR, um, that if you want to, uh, there's a lot of market potential and a lot of uh, possible applications you can unlock if you can mimic that uh, capability. And to do that, you're going to need these modern uh, deep learning techniques because that's currently the only way we know how to solve this. Um, so that means that. To unlock this, you have no choice but to solve this, proving that it is a safe um, uh, problem. And also, I want to be clear: so certification is not the goal. You know, the goal is to prove that it is safe. And if you can prove that it is safe, then FAA and EASA will gladly, you know, give you the certificates. Uh, so it's not a matter of jumping through hoops uh, and, and and getting away with it. It is you have to you know, be convinced that it's safe first. So. Uh, our system has camera, has neural network. The neural network says runways over there, and then it talks to an existing flight director or uh, autopilot, and it can either help the pilot uh, be pilot advisory, or you can directly glue it to uh, an autopilot that is in control of the aircraft. And uh, this is actually a capability we demonstrated uh, with the partner in a flight test uh, not too long ago. Um, so that's why image recognition. Uh, to answer your question, because that's how humans do it, this is a clear path to market for you know, usable functions, and for that you have to solve the image recognition. And problem. you know, just to kind of review that, all the components of such a system that would use a neural network for image recognition, you know, to to for example land on a runway. What are all the components? Is it it's a camera, an autopilot system, and then your actual neural network exists as an algorithm? You're saying right. So um, it, the system is actually not from from an electronics and an uh, information technology point of view. It's not that hard. You, you take this high definition camera, um, uh, and then so you get these these five or twelve megapixel images uh, in at a decent frame rate. Then you first you know you enhance this picture as much as you also would for a human who would be looking at a monitor over there. So you get, you get a really good image with lots of information. And then the neural network looks at one image at a time and says, this looks like a runway here. And I'm this certain that it actually is a runway. And then, uh, so if you know where it is in the, in the image, you can then feed it to a classical radar tracking-like algorithm that tries to follow the, the guidance vector. And you can output that to an autopilot to say, uh, you know, fly this way, and uh, I think you're this high. And then it will guide you to the. Um, so that's uh, that, you know, and the box in the middle is a classical computer running uh, a neural network algorithm, which has this emergent property that it finds things that look like runways on the picture. Now, to make this an overall safe system, you know, you want some other parts around it. For example, you don't want to, you know, you want to switch the system on and off, <laughs> so that it only you know tells the autopilot to land in the landing phase, you know, and only looks for a runway around the place where you want to land. So we don't want to have a system where the camera is glued to this massive neural network that directly controls the control surfaces of the aircraft, because that would be safe. You know, the best case, you get the uh, performance of a snail 
Um, and snails make you know terrible pilots. They don't know any rules of the air. <laughs> and um, um, so it is not a blind, you know, we don't put a massive magic box that we call AI in the middle and let it do something. We, one of the key approaches uh, that we have is, you know, you isolate this uh, modern new thing that we don't know for sure how to deal with to a very well-defined uh, box where it's supposed to do one thing and one thing well, and then you try to prove that it does that one thing well. Um, and so like with all other engineering in aerospace or like all other engineering anywhere, it's, it starts with writing down what it's supposed to do and then making something that does that and then proving that it does that. So that is, that is not new. And actually, so most of the processes that go from the ARP uh, system and safety requirements all, that, all the way down to the, the high level uh, uh, system design, that all stays completely the same. Right. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you about this report is um, actually a couple of months ago, we had interviewed you for avionics and you had actually talked about at that time, you developed an autopilot system that uses a neural network and you had flight tested this in a Cessna 180. Um, and I wanted to point that out because people listening might not right. be aware of that and kind of think of, you know, okay, a neural network is maybe like a future technology, but you're actively, you know, researching and using this technology, oh. right? We routinely do these things on drones, which, you know, you can cheaply fly and afford to make a mistake with. Then uh, we have tested for the Technovoid. We have a similar system. So it turns out that it really helps if you want to detect and avoid purely on visual. So it's a dissimilar system to uh, ADSB and radar. Um, you want to recognize that a small blob of pixels actually looks like an aircraft. So we've, we've tested that with our partner, Autonodyne, over Boston. Uh, we've done some tests with Bendix King on this uh, landing guidance. Um, we have now started uh, flying. Um, so this is not in the control loop. So one of the advantages we have, it's a relative luxury, is uh, we can demonstrate the uh, adequacy and the, the performance of the of the um, systems that we are talking about now. These situational awareness, you can just fly around and see that it properly sees where you are and that it properly sees where you can land and that it properly sees where you should not fly because there's something else flying. So you can do this independent of being actually in control of the aircraft, which makes it much safer to test. So we can do this on drones in the control loop, but we can do it on big, dangerous, actual real aircraft out of the control loop and then show that you know it would have worked. Uh, we're now progressing to uh, next phase where we are trying to get uh, permission to do some of these things uh, in the control loop with the big dangerous aircraft. Um, but, uh, you know, it, uh, theoretically, that's that's luxury, uh, although, you know, in the end, the proof is in the pudding. Um, so we're also doing quite some tests in uh, Switzerland with rented helicopters where, you know, there's a human who flies a trajectory that we kindly ask the human to fly. And then we can show that you know, our visual positioning system, which uses similar things, this is another function we have. So as a human pilot, uh, for decades, humans flew without GPS. Um, and you know, by looking at the window and uh, recognizing landmarks, uh, that's still you know, the backup um, and uh, the lost procedures for a lot of situation. Um, so we can also mimic that, and that needs uh, similar uh, capabilities where you use um, uh, where you can recognize mountains and coastlines and 
uh, types of uh, surfaces. Um, uh, so these things we can all demonstrate on flight tests uh, today. And uh, the goal is to have them out and on the market. Um, you know, in in I'm not going to commit to hard timelines here, but you know, uh, one or two years rather than ten. And I also just wanted to ask you, you know, while we while we do have you, you know, one of the main um, ways that I learned about Dedalian is some of the work you were doing in the air taxi space that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, could you could you talk about that a little bit as well? Are you are you are you still kind of looking at that space as one of the main use cases that could kind of exploit your technology? Uh, well, that was the, uh, I'll be honest, that was the original inspiration. So meeting helium and thinking, okay, 100,000 heliums in the air, that's going to require these systems. Uh, and so in the, in the beginning, we set out clearly with, uh, you know, autonomy for EV tolls is uh, what we work on, and the rest is destruction. That was <laughs> a bit uh, overly optimistic and naive. Um, so uh, these things will happen. I'm still very much convinced, and they will also happen faster than some people think and you know i think some of these aircraft are actually pretty advanced in certification stages in the u.s um and uh but then they are they plan to operate with pilots first because you know the autonomy is for them a bigger risk than um uh even the propulsion and the uh, and the operations so so they will happen uh but in the meantime um uh, turns out that there's already a huge business case for uh, civil aviation that exists today. So general aviation isn't as safe as it's cracked up to be. So the um, the, uh, the statement that flying is the safest mode of transport yeah, that, uh, that applies to airliners. Um, but if you you know also if you divide it by the number of passengers and miles on board. But if you look at uh, small aircraft and you look at the uh, accidents per hour, you know, it's like it's like a motorcycle. So there's actually a lot of headroom there to help. Um, so another thing that's going on there is that every system gets safer and safer and safer because it has collective engineering efforts, you know, of humanity sunk into it. But the human that's leaking the control loop stays the same. So we can make, uh, we are convinced we can make uh, flying today safer by uh, rolling out pilot advisory and pilot assistance and you know small steps towards autonomy uh, for aircraft that fly today. Uh, for example, this uh, helicopter emergency landing assistance, you know, that's a useful thing right now. Um, so we have, I wouldn't call it a pivot, um, uh, but we have uh, re-emphasized uh, applications in aerospace today. So we're also talking to a much broader set of uh, airframe builders uh, many of which who have already, you know, things that fly today. So um, uh, that said, we're also, uh, with some of the uh, urban air mobility makers, we're, we're in quite advanced talks and doing demonstration flights and, and uh, more more announcements in due time. Um, uh, but yeah, it's definitely, it's not, it, we don't just engineer for the far future. We want to engineer useful things for today. And so now that you have published this report with uh, with EASA, one of the things that, that EASA specifically states in the report is that uh, some of the results of the project that work with you will serve as a key enabler towards the certification 
and improve an approval of machine learning and safety critical applications for aircraft. Now, now that this report is out, and uh, what are sort of the next steps that you see towards making these technologies a, a reality on aircraft? Obviously, right now, you know, we're all right. impacted, but you know, what are the next steps out yep. there? Um, so we hope to do a, so, you know, even though it's 136 pages, you know, it's not, it's not the final word and we haven't covered all the details. So we hope to do a follow-up project with EASA where we take, uh, this system or a similar one through a mock certification project and then see what's missing. Um, and, uh, so we hope that they will uh be open to this um we have uh, had some talks with the faa to do uh, something similar perhaps with a more experimental flight test component to it um so these are early discussions but we really hope to um uh, uh to continue this uh, this work where we see the the regulator as a, as a customer uh, rather than as a as a barrier um a partner partner is the right word um but then, uh, you know, we also are trying to get our um, systems, you know, actually embodied in boxes that you could, you know, buy and then put in your aircraft and then pay us money for, because we are a for-profit uh, company. And uh, for that, um, we have partnered with uh, well-known avionics uh, maker Avidyne. Uh, so one of the challenges we've had in the past is that because nobody needs to write run these algorithms in aircraft the computing uh facilities that you can find and the cameras that you can find to do this uh to sufficiently uh, so sufficiently powerful computing uh certified to uh sufficiently high uh, design insurance level is completely missing so we've partnered with Avidyne to actually make uh, powerful the, the, the uh, sufficiently certifiable um flyable supercomputer and uh, so that we can you know put our software in their box and go to market together um, so there are also more announcements uh, to follow uh, in, in, in due course um, but yeah so in, in the next year we hope to um, be able to sell actual systems for real money to uh, customers today and with that, we think that actually in, in the urban uh, air mobility and but also in the um, unmanned aviation, uh, that would already unlock a number of things. Uh, as I said, um, uh, optional safety enhancements in general aviation and, and maybe pilot advisory and some more crucial functions uh, first, but slowly on our way to you know, full autonomy. And before I do let you go, you know, considering that uh, we're, we're putting this out in kind of under a unprecedented times, um, how is the, uh, you know, coronavirus situation there in Switzerland where you are and, and how has it affected some of the work that you've been doing? You know, so this exciting development work that, that you're ongoing, you know, participating in. Yeah, so uh, it was actually, uh, I will be 100% uh, honest with you, it had proved me wrong. So I was uh, very much against working from home. It's one of the things I did not like about Silicon Valley culture is, you know, a, a certain, you know, working from home is fine. So it, when I was the, 
you know, the, the emperor over my own little uh, empire, I, I told people, you know, in, in our company, we don't work from home. We work from the office. We have the same brains in the same room all the time. And then uh, when this uh, pandemic happened, I was forced to send everybody home. Turns out <laughs> people are actually fairly productive. <laughs> um, so it's so we're actually trying to keep uh, some of the good things. Of this. For some people, it, it's a productivity boost because there's less distractions. For other people, they go crazy on their home, uh, on their own, uh, in, in their home. So you know, uh, we have um, we are pretty lucky. We we are allowed to gather in, in groups of up to five people. So everybody's strongly encouraged to work from home. But if you need access to hardware, you know, you can come to the office and then we coordinate that there's not more than five people in the office and that, that works well. So some people go mad on their own and they really need someone to talk to. But so what we do is we have uh, for every team that works from home, which is currently everyone, we have a stand up, mandatory stand up every day instead of every few days. And we have um, we have a thing called snippets where everybody writes a two, three line uh, report on what they did today. And for some people, it's really, it's like a lab journal. It's a very detailed diary of what they did. And other people are a bit shorter. Um, so we do this daily. And then, so that bit of the work actually progresses really well. I'm still a bit concerned how to onboard new people. But I think we're going to actually keep some of this, um, uh, this style of working um when we go back to the uh, to the new normal another thing that we've been very lucky is we can continue the flight tests so um uh, both with the drones as with the rented helicopters that's uh, within the allowed uh, parameters of the lockdown if we don't sit with more than five people in a helicopter so uh, which we never do <laughs> so so we've been actually really lucky um then where we've been uh, impacted is, of course, that uh, with our newfound focus on existing aviation today, you know, we find that whole industry in a bit of a um, upheaval and uncertainty. Uh, we think that in the end, it will just mean more opportunity for us. Um, but, you know, uh, of course, investors also want to, you know, first see what's happening now before they fork over, you know, uh, new bags of money. Uh, so the uncertainty is definitely there, but uh, from an engineering point of view, it's it's not been bad. Um, also, fortunately, our staff has not been impacted uh, personally with uh, with any illness. So, um, yeah, on the whole, I think maybe it's like a, a meteorite where you know it will after this pandemic recedes, we will find a slightly different planet where you new opportunities exist and new parties will, will take these opportunities. Oh. Uh, and maybe on the whole, they will end up as a better planet. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Global Connected Aircraft Podcast. Uh, if you like our content or have suggestions for topics we should be covering in future episodes, please like, or comment on our podcast episodes, either on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, we greatly appreciate that, or leave us a rating, or uh, like I said, just a suggestion for topics we should look to cover on future episodes. My name is Woodrow Bellamy III. Thanks again for listening.